right, welcome to another edition of OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with one of my dear friends from CNBC. She's actually a co-host of CNBC's Tech Check. She is Deirdre Bosa. We just call her affectionately Debo. Debo, welcome to OK Computer. I'm thrilled. I made the cut. I've been wanting to be on your podcast forever, Dan, so I am honored and excited. You know what's really funny? We actually emailed you a couple times last year, and to your, your NBC Universal email, you never responded. So we thought you were ghosting us for on the Never. Table, now you've got my, my Gmail is the, is the path. And I'm not going to dox you, but here's the deal. Uh, you and I saw each other IRL. We were at Kara Switcher's Code Conference, her last conference last week in LA and you and I sat into a bunch of the sessions and it was pretty fascinating. And and I want to kind of go over a a little bit of that. I want to go over today. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, a day that the NASDAQ closed down 5%, the worst day in the stock market in over two years and just a lot of cross currents going on. And I know that, you know, again, before you were on the tech beat, you were a reporter for CNBC in Asia and London, and you have a great grasp of, you know, all things macro, but also markets. And sometimes, you know, I've been following tech for a very long time, and now you follow both public and private tech markets. Sometimes they just get disconnected from each other, and they're telling different stories. And depending upon who you're talking to, they might have totally different vibes. So I want to hear all about that, your take on some of that. But first things first, how did you get to be a co-host of CNBC's Tech Check? You were on the West Coast. When I first saw you, you were doing, I think, Squawk Box Asia. This was back in like 2015 and 16. And when we were on the set of Fast Money, you were just getting tuned up <laughs> in the morning over there and you would come on our show. So talk to us a little bit about your trip around the world with CNBC. Just a young green reporter. I remember that if you were in Singapore and you had to do the US hit, no one wanted to do it because it was late in the afternoon. You had to stay way later. And we started like you do here very, very early in the morning. But I always put up my hand because Ultimately, I thought I wanted to come back to North America. I'm Canadian, but US is close enough. So I started in Singapore. I was in Beijing for a while. I convinced them to hire me. Not on my first time, mind you. I remember I went in for my um, my interview and I thought I just had to read the prompter. And they were like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works here. So I went away. I literally studied for a year to try and be able to come on CNBC. I came back again and they hired me. I went from Singapore to London to, I was the original home studio in Vancouver, Canada years ago, and then down to San Francisco where I've been ever since. Yeah. Well, you do a great job. And I not only enjoy your reporting, the sourcing that you do is amazing and you're just really, really good at it. So, you know, well, I learned from the best. All you guys, I've been watching for years. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you this because sometimes people think if you're on, you know, like a show or you're on CNBC, a channel like that, that you're like a journalist. And I have to be very clear that I am not a journalist. People like you are actually doing journalistic work, reporting, you know, building sources, that sort of thing. I just show up and offer some hot takes. But one thing that's really funny every once in a while, when they were doing a promo or something, they'll ask us to read prompter. I cannot read prompter. It, it is a skill. <laughs> am I right? It is difficult. I will tell you that I'm still not very good at reading prompter. And I ask our producers on Tech Check to sort of write as little as possible. And I've got Carl and John who are amazing. And I feel like 
we all come from a different perspective, so we can talk anything. And I get tripped up on the prompter too. It's not just yeah, you it's hard. All right, let's get it. Speaking of getting <laughs> tripped up, let's talk a little bit about what we saw, heard, kind of witnessed at Code last week. It was a pretty fascinating conference. It was Kara's 20th. She started doing all things digital with Walt Mossberg again 20 years ago when they were at the Wall Street Journal. It morphed into Code. And, you know, this was a bang up final year. I mean, in 24 hours, Andy Jazzy, the CEO of Amazon, spoke. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alpha. Pet Tim Cook, the CEO of, I mean, it was pretty like amazing, right? For Trillions all in market value over the yeah. course of 24 hours. Most important companies in the world. It was amazing. It, it was amazing, you know, and I did uh, fast money from there. And I think that night or the second night, I said we had $6 trillion in market cap just speak to us and the CEOs, but more dramatically, $1.2 trillion in annual revenue and growing for those three companies. Wow. So I'm just curious, like, what was your takeaway? You know, for me, it felt like there was three CEOs of three of the largest companies in the world that were managing towards a very difficult macro environment, managing towards deceleration post-pandemic, especially specifically Amazon, but generally kind of have their arms around things. That was my take. And we also had a market that was kind of coming off of a two-week slide and was rallying a little bit. It just felt like a different vibe. Then throw in today and some of the hardest hit stocks. You know, Apple was down nearly 6% in market cap terms. That's massive. Microsoft was down 5.5%. Amazon down 7%. So I'm curious, it's like week on week now, two totally different vibes. Any takeaways from, from last week into this week? That's exactly how I felt too. Even though it was just a few days ago, last week, it felt like a totally different vibe. But then again, you've sort of seen these companies, they're the cream of the crop, they're the industry leaders, they have so much cash versus the smaller unprofitable tech companies that we cover. So they're in a position of kind of luxury when Sundar Pichai says something like we have to be 20% more efficient, you believe him, you believe he can do that while delivering on profitability and revenue growth and all the things that he has. And he said something similar to me when I interviewed him a few months ago. It was on a similar day as today. The market had just dropped. I think I was looking at the NASDAQ. It was down 4% or something. And I kind of threw up my script and asked him, <laughs> this is happening. I think this was this was in May, you know, the start of the real market turmoil. And he gave me a very similar response. And I think that was my takeaway from hearing from these three CEOs, the steadiness that they're able to give investors, maybe employees. I think their employees is a different challenge. I know you've talked about this before, but a lot of their employees is something that Sundar Pichai told me months ago. A lot of them uh, have never seen a recession or a downturn, a real downturn before. But certainly in terms of investor sentiment, I felt like they reassured. They once again reassured last week. Yeah, it's funny. At a conference like that, you know, it seems like a lot of the people speaking on stage are, are public market executives. And it seems a lot of people in the stands, in, in the in the crowd, are private. Or there's a lot of VCs there. And so let's talk a little bit about that disconnect. Because on OK Computer, and I know a lot of the guests that we've had and a lot of my co-hosts you know and you speak to, that sort of thing. And one of the very common themes is that usually the private tech markets lag public markets by, let's call it, you know, six to 12 months or something like that. And you just mentioned unprofitable tech. And, and you know, Evan Spiegel, that was, although that is not a big company anymore by any means, $5 billion in revenues and less than $20 billion in market cap, down 80% from its all-time highs. Big news broke while we were there that they were cutting 20% of their workforce. So that came out the prior week. But then it was an internal memo that suggested that by the end of next year, 2023, that they were going to have 20% 
revenue growth and 30% subscriber or user growth, which was like kind of eye popping a little way. What was your take from that? And again, you know, the stock market or at least investors rewarded the company for that guidance. The stock rallied 10, 15%. But again, this is a very unprofitable company. Notice they didn't say anything about profitability. Yeah. One thing I like about Evan Spiegel is that he's very transparent. And a lot of the CEOs we hear from actually on Tech Check, because they actually come on when their stock is down, when they're going through challenges. And I always go back to, as an example of this, to an Airbnb. Do you remember when the pandemic hit, you thought this is a company that is going to get killed. They are on the path to an IPO. They took a haircut. I think they were valued at $33 billion down to $18 billion. They raised debt. They didn't get very good rates to do so. And then they came roaring back. And I mean, like roaring back just, what was it, like six months later? So I think good CEOs, they talk, they're transparent, they come through. I think Evan Spiegel has a lot more challenges. There's something about what Apple's doing that is upending the entire ad landscape. What TikTok is doing is upending the entire social media landscape. But I think that he is someone who, investors at least, you can count on hearing from him. He's not going to back away if they don't live up to the expectations. And he talks to investor communities and shareholders so often that I put a lot of weight into that. Yeah, well, you could tell that Kara Swisher really likes Evan. And what was shocking to me, and you forget sometimes that because he's been in our lives as the CEO, founder of a company that it has a service that almost every other person you know in America is using in some way, shape, or form. He's 32 years old. And, and Kara, I think, really respects exactly what you just said, the transparency, which you know as a journalist, because again, he's not only out there touting great new products when they're at con and this and that, whatever, but he also shows up when they have to do a meaningful guide down and cut 20% of their workforce. Can I also say one thing about him? You brought up a really important point. You didn't hear much about profitability. I appreciate that. Don't tell me you're going to be profitable through some obscure metric like adjusted EBITDA yeah, yeah. or even free cash flow that is less than your stock-based compensation. So I appreciate that he kind of puts it out there and lets you decide. All right. We're going to talk about those two points that you just made because you are also on the ride share and delivery beat. And that and that is a theme that- <laughs> Could you tell from, I was thinking of something? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely could. And we're going to get to your interview with Dara because you had a number of really good ones, but you just spoke to him in the past week. But I want to hit on one thing and I thought was pretty fascinating that while TikTok was not at this conference, TikTok was on the tips of everybody's tongue, if you will. And I think they've turned into a really easy scapegoat goat, if you will, for a lot of like US social media or like ad-based models. Because again, I think a lot of these CEOs know that they're squarely in not only the sites of US regulators, but also ByteDance, its partner in China, right? And we know what's happened over there. Talk to me a little bit about some of the conversations that you had. Was it really just lip service that a lot of these companies, it was very easy for them to blame some of the the woes? And, and again, you know, you just mentioned Apple's, you know, ATT, the app tracking and everything like that. There's a whole host of headwinds that are hitting these companies. But let's talk about TikTok a little bit and just your thoughts and some of the reporting they're doing and just some of the stuff that you're hearing from investors. I mean, the holy grail for advertising is engagement. And that's what all social media companies are trying to figure out. And Dan, have you ever been on? Do you use TikTok? 
You know what? It's really interesting, and I think you know this. I have daughters that are now 17 and 19, and you know, during the pandemic, it was something that just obviously exploded, and people had a lot of time. And they went from not only consuming but creating a lot of TikToks. It was like an activity that they could do, and they were tracking different dances, and they were doing a lot of stuff. And I will tell you now, they're still spending a lot of time on it, but they're only consuming. They are not making anything anymore. And that could be purely anecdotal, but whatever the behavior, the user behavior has really shifted. And you just said the holy grail is engagement. I don't think power scrolling through videos is like a really upper end engagement unless you get your arms around what the ad load looks like, right? Because that that really is it. Right. So you're saying maybe there was more engagement at the beginning of it when they were participating and 100%. posting yeah. their own content. Yeah. I, just watch it. I will tell you an hour will pass on TikTok and you, you sit up and you're like, whoa, what just happened? It is so addictive and it's so easy for the other social media companies like a Meta or a Snap or anyone really to say that it is addictive and it has some of these qualities that we don't like about tech. But that is sort of the brilliance of it too, right? Is this algorithm and that's the fear is that it's at the end of the day in the back end, a Chinese company that is consuming this, that knows what's capturing your attention, that leaves you on the app for an hour. You don't even know where the time has gone. But I also feel like it's a little silly to talk about banning TikTok for its privacy issues when we have such poor privacy protections here in the United States. We like to say that on TechCheck that it's not the lawmakers that are regulating privacy. It's Tim Cook and Apple. They've done more on this front than anyone has. And, you know, it's easy because TikTok is that elephant in the room. We spoke to Jim Breyer as well, a brilliant investor who is an early Facebook investor who was on the board. I'm not sure if he still is, but he came on. He said us, yes, the TikTok threat is so real. And we interviewed Bill Reddy from Pinterest this morning, too. And we asked him, what are you doing about video? Because even TikTok looms large for him. John, my co-anchor, was saying, you know, the Kardashians should be on Pinterest not on Instagram. And it's true. It's kind of every social media network, every e-commerce platform is trying to, in some way, get that TikTok audience. Well, it's funny when you think about what Trump did with Truth Social. I think the Kardashians, if they came together with private equity backing and wanted to create their own version of whatever they're unhappy with, with Instagram's reels or whatever, it would probably take off like wildfire. So, hey, Kim, give me a ring if you're into it. She's a VC now. I know. Well, Debo, you could be like, you could do some big things there. I'll put the cash together. (laughs) But let me take a step back because you just mentioned Meta. and Well, two things about the banning. Okay. I, I will just say this. My view has less to do with privacy because I agree with everything what you said about privacy here, okay? My view is more if we are going to be in this tit-for-tat economic war with China and many of our large tech champions, if you will, don't have access to their markets, which, again, Twitter, Facebook, most of our digital companies do not, social media companies, that sort of thing, then why should one of their largest companies have access to our markets? Now, we might have a civil war, teenage girls versus regulators here in America. (laughs) We may have another capital riot here. But my point very simply is that I think ultimately you saw what just happened with NVIDIA, this proposed export ban of certain chips or something. This is not going to get better before it's going to get worse before it gets better, if you will. Well, okay. So I don't think you would have teenage girls versus the regulators. You would have an explosion of VPNs. That's what every, that's what all the youth does in China, by the way. 
everyone actually does access the American apps if they want to, but I actually don't know that they really want to because they have their own apps like WeChat over there that are hugely popular. But they're um, censored, right? And so the issue is- if you censored. Use, you need if to you, get past the great firewall, if, yeah. If you, if you use a VPN and you're in China though, and you get found out, you get in some serious trouble, you know? And so, I mean, again, I mean, we don't have that issue here. And, you know, I know how lazy teenagers are in America. The, the idea of like setting up a, a VPN while it's pretty easy, I just don't see it happening. So who knows? Well, and I think that's why what we've done with chips, what the US government has done with chips is so interesting because years ago, leadership in Beijing said, we're going to pour billions and billions of dollars into our own chip ambitions, and we're going to create the next cutting edge chip. And they've really been unable to do so. It turns out that this is really, really hard to do. On the lower end, yes, they've been able to, but you need the NVIDIAs. You need these high-end chips to create technology, the next generation of technology. So I think that's more interesting and probably a lot more powerful than banning TikTok here. But they're a communist government, right? They can ban things left, right, and center, not even have to give a reason for it. Yeah. Do we want to get into that fight? I, I don't know. Should we find a legal reason to ban TikTok? Well, I think this could get pretty simple for us here is like, especially if uh, as our major manufacturers are looking to reshore manufacturing that is dependent on China and Taiwan. I mean, this might just kind of escalate in a manner where we have like a bipolar tech world. I mean, you, you just mentioned the great firewall. We already have that. So we might just see more and more reason why to kind of meet force with force. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here. And I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. You mentioned Meta here, and this is interesting. There was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday talking. It was said Instagram stumbles and pushed to mimic TikTok internal document show. This quote was pretty shocking and got a lot of play here. Instagram users cumulatively are spending 17.6 million hours a day watching reels, less than one-tenth of the 197.8 million hours TikTok users spend each day on that platform. So this is really an issue as Zuckerberg a year ago wanted to reposition this company towards whatever his vision of the metaverse is. And they went off on a huge spending spree to do that. The stock has been more than cut in half since then. It was down nearly 10% today, making new 52-week lows. Talk to me about that because here's a company that has over $3 billion monthly active users. Just think of that, like a third of the planet. Now, the engagement is kind of lessening. Their ability to monetize them is lessening. They still have average revenue per user far greater than any other social media platform on the planet that ever has. But when you think about the importance of Instagram right now, I mean, those numbers are staggering and it doesn't seem like there's any way in hell they're ever going to be able to catch up to TikTok. I come back, this seems very basic and a basic thing to say, but 
Facebook, Instagram, it's just not cool anymore. Have you noticed too, with your own social media network, like every 10 years or so, you want to kind of flush it out, but you can't. And you have all of these people. First, it was Facebook that you kind of were like, I feel weird knowing so much about their lives. And then you have Instagram and you have people you've had on your Instagram for five plus years and you want to kind of flush that out. And somewhere along the way, it's just lost its cool factor. And that's when Snap came along. And now you've got TikTok and now you've got a new app, Be Real, which I love because I've got like five people on it. The five people I really want to see what they're doing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, over the last, call it 10 plus years, I don't use a lot of those things. I try them, I tinker them just because I want to see what's going on, like something that threatens an incumbent, that sort of thing. Be real to me seems exactly what goes on in Snap. It's just a different functionality. I see my kids, they take selfies and just send like a picture. That's exactly what's going on in Be Real, but it's like two-sided. So I get it. It doesn't seem particularly innovative to me and I don't expect it to be something that is like a powerhouse. Well, here's my question. Does it represent something to a younger demographic. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the mental health issues that social media networks have helped create or amplify. I don't know, create, just maybe amplify. And this is what I asked Evan Spiegel too last week at Code. I said, does the rise of an app like Be Real, what kind of opportunity does that represent to you? It's not curated. It's more quote unquote real. And that's, I think, probably Snapchat sticking power. They haven't figured out how to monetize it, but their user growth has been really strong. Yeah, well, I mean, in a different regulatory environment, Facebook would have just snatched that right up. And so when you think about it, I mean, they did a Series B round. This is Be Real. It's a French company at $600 million. And back in the day, I mean, when you think about that, that would have just been snapped up for a billion. That was like the nice round number that Instagram and everything like that. So Evan Spiegel maybe should be doing that. When you think about their ability to buy things, I think some of their massive competitors, you know, obviously Alphabet and Meta would have a hard time. I think much less so when you think about the troubles that a company like Snap is having, if they want to go out and buy some innovative things, the problem is, again, on a gap basis, this is an unprofitable company. So, I mean, you and I could go back and forth on the things that they should do. My biggest takeaway from that conversation with Evan, and I know that you had time with him on Tech Check, was that they really want to get focused right now. They really want to kind of get down to what the core of that product is and figure out how to better monetize the users that they have. But then also, I mean, they are laying down the gauntlet because because you said you're happy that they didn't come up with some BS sort of profitability metric that they will hit, <laughs> but gaining 30% of their users over the next year and change, that's a lot. It is a lot. You bring up that word focus. I've been hearing that more and more recently. And I spoke also this morning, we had um, Bill Reddy of Pinterest and I asked him, okay, what's your strategy? How are you going to turn around that social media network? And he just kept coming back to this focus. They're going to focus on getting, growing the merchant base in intent to buy there. Talked to Chesky a few hours later and I asked him, okay, when are you going to go like vertical? You know, you're this platform and that's great, but now you got cash and you can do something like build hotels again or manage hotels. And he said, no, something I learned during the pandemic is that I have to focus. And so that's what some of these CEOs are taking this time, this downturn with their stock falling so much from their peaks to just focus in on the thing that they do best. Well, Dan, you and I may have all these ideas. Okay, you could go out there and do this acquisition. Um, Wouldn't that be interesting? But it feels like a hunkering down moment for those 
especially those unprofitable tech companies. Yeah. And, and I worry even like a Twitter, you know, again, about $5 billion in revenue is the same for Snap. Pinterest is half that. I mean, I just don't know how those companies kind of go it alone. I mean, Pinterest is, you know, marginally profitable on an adjusted basis and, you know, it's expected to be next year, but I just don't know how they get the scale. And so if Snap is only worth $18 billion as an enterprise value, there's no way that if a Delaware court makes Elon Musk close on Twitter at 44 billion that snap is only worth 18 billion in my in my opinion and so I think the best thing again I, I think Twitter shareholders make out if he is forced to close I just don't think he will close I think he will continue to stretch it out and, and move it around but if you're a shareholder you have every opportunity in the world to sell your stock you know what I mean right. like you see the stock where moment. it is yeah I mean like right you can sell it right now if you just don't think it's at trading at you know near 42 dollars and the and the price is supposed to be 54 but I guess my point is is that if that doesn't happen the management's out the board is out the stock is a two handle on it meaning it's like somewhere in the 20s or something like that and in that scenario i think that you would you know maybe see and i know that they're not similar products but snap and twitter and you just mentioned this they, they should combine but you just mentioned this is that really important audience that teen audience well let me tell you something okay like teens are not really spending you know what i mean like just that <laughs> yes. kind of an interesting thing and you almost want to upsell them to different platforms and different opportunities talk to me about that Look at Roblox. I mean, they came out. It used to be exactly what you're saying. It used to say they used to say, "Look, our user base is young. They're under 13 years old. They're eventually going to spend money." And now you hear the CEO saying that, "Okay, now the majority of their users are over 13 years old, as that is an asset because they're going to have more money to spend." So it is moving up the value chain, but it feels like such a shift from the last few years when we talked about the Coinbase and the Robinhoods and the Snaps having this active young user base that they can capitalize on. The problem is that it's been really, as you say, really difficult to capitalize on them. Is that always going to be the case? I mean, they have to keep them on the platform and make sure they don't go somewhere else as they get older. Yeah, and that's it. And they need to have more offerings other than just like like VR glasses or something like that. So I, I'm with you. All right, let's talk. We only have a few more minutes. You spoke to Dara this morning, the CEO of Uber. You've had a lot of interviews with him since he took over a few years ago from Expedia here. Talk to me a little bit about that business because they, they, they have come roaring back. Both uh, Uber and Lyft have actually given some pretty upbeat guidance, right, about their businesses going forward. And these two companies are famous for guiding to some sort of like profitability metrics that like most people think is a total fugazi. But again, talk to me a little bit about like what you think the vibes going there, because Uber has had a huge rally. It got to about 20 over the course of the summer, and it was just trading, I think, around 33. And even today, it, it really outperformed the broad market. It was only down three and a half percent versus a NASDAQ that was down, you know, five and change percent. Relative outperform. But when you say come roaring back, come roaring back, from when? I mean, they didn't do anything during the pandemic, didn't really do much after. Uber went public at $45 a share. And remember, I remember so well covering that IPO. And there was talks that, oh, could this company go public at $120 billion valuation as the investment bankers were fighting over, you know, who got to represent them. And it just hasn't lived up to that potential because I know the reason I, I love covering Uber so much is I feel like it was my baby. When I got to San Francisco as a tech reporter, didn't really know what I was doing. The first company I looked into was Uber. It seemed like this exciting disruptor that had become a household name, a verb with this really controversial CEO, Travis Kalanick, who would go on to do all the wrong things 
including that video of him chewing out a driver when he was in the backseat. So Dara came in and, you know, it's really admirable what he's done in terms of taking on this challenge. This is a Wall Street guy, though, right? And he's very good at telling investors what they want to hear. So I wonder, this is a stock with an overwhelming buy rating. I don't know exactly what it is, but it seems to me like Wall Street loves the stock. Well, they were all on the deal, okay? And there's 43 buys, <laughs> four holds, and one sell. And I mean, that that is astounding for a stock that is down, you know, 25% of the year. So it has outperformed many of its peers. But to your point, they were all in on the IPO and they've all stuck it out. And it's been a dead bang loser because the stock's 31 bucks. It traded 20, went public at 45, didn't spend a whole heck of a lot of time above that. But here's the, the astounding thing is that they're expected to have $31 billion in sales this year, but on a gap basis, net income loss of $9 billion plus, which is it's wild. crazy. And then look at their valuation. This is not a tech company. This is valued like a value company, right? But that's kind of what Dara Khosrowshahi has been doing. He has sold off all the most interesting parts of this business, like autonomous driving, that its founder, Travis Kalanick, said was existential for the company. That is how they grow to become worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They don't have that anymore. They don't have scooters and bikes. They you know, have done a bunch of acquisitions like Postmates, but Postmates was sort of tossed around by everyone in the gig economy. And the result of the M&A activity has been extremely dilutive to shareholders as well, along with the stock-based compensation. So again, I, I appreciate how we moved on from adjusted EBITDA. That metric yeah. would just drive me crazy. <laughs> but now it's free cash flow and it feels like sort of the new crutch you know, for unprofitable tech companies. They can say, look, we have free cash flow. But then you look a little deeper, and if you put back in stock-based compensation, which you know Warren Buffett and others think you know is a real expense, a real cost that you need to take into account, they're still unprofitable. Yeah, well, I, I get that, and, and again, that's why we like to look at the gap and, and some of these names that you mentioned. The gig, I mean, Airbnb has a seventy-nine billion dollar market cap. When you think about DoorDash, also like a twenty-five billion. We just talked about Uber at north of sixty. I mean, so these guys, the unit economics in these companies have not gotten a whole heck of a lot better, except and- for Airbnb. Airbnb has gap profitability, and they just did, a two, or they just announced a two billion dollar buyback. So it's interesting to see actually how. Yeah, but I don't. Want to see that? Do you, if you were a shareholder of that company, why are they buying back their own stock? Yeah, they want to be focused and they got rid of experiences and they got rid of, you know, hotels. You want to go do some cool shit, man. You know what I mean? Like, so to me, I don't know. All right. Well, listen, like Debo. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, no, I, I, I mean, again, <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's the kiss of death when you see like Twitter, you know what? Right before in February, they announced a stock buyback. Okay. The stock was in the shitter back then. Okay. And Elon was buying it. Maybe they knew Elon was like buying stock out there. They thought it was a good time. And I remember. I remember seeing Ned Siegel, the CFO out in LA. This was in early February before that thing. And I said, dude, when you guys announced that stock buyback, I was like almost fell off my chair. And I said to him, to his face, I don't know the guy either. I went up to him at a, at a party somewhere and I, I probably ruined his night. Sorry, Ned. Um, nice guy. And I was like, listen, just wait. I said, 
that is literally like you just wave the flag for the activists and they're coming. And we know You're the real, activists uh, have been there. Party treat. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was, I'm sorry. I try to be real as the. No, uh, I like that. Uh, I, I would do. do the same thing because I'm such a nerd. I, yeah. I love that. I mean, come talk to me about buybacks at a party. I'm, I'm all in. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> all right, let's be in you. We, we got to get together. We got to talk about buybacks. We got to talk about like kind of funky uh, profitability in the gig economy space. But listen, Debo, I know you got to go. I really wanted to catch up with you after code because you and I had some of the same thoughts after hearing some of those uh, conversations. And uh, I really hope that you will come back on OK Computer. You will come on on the tape with Danny Guy and me because I know that they're jealous that I had you to myself today. I would love to. And I will sort through my NBC email to make sure I never miss an email from you again. <laughs> All right. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, Debo. Thanks for joining us on OK Computer. Thank you Speak so much for soon. having me. All right. Bye. See you on Tech Check. See you. Bye. Thanks.